Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tuesday edition of BibleQuest.tv. We're glad you're able to join us on this uh, beautiful Tuesday afternoon as we discuss about things about the Bible, the Bible topics. If you're coming in on the Zoom app, we encourage you to uh, click on the uh, Q&A button, had to think there for a minute, and pop up the Q&A window and give us your comments and questions. If you want to call in and voice your question or comment, just hit the raise the hand button and we'll bring you your audio on and you can talk to us with your questions and comments. If you're coming in on the YouTube channel, please uh, put your comments in the chat uh, box area on the YouTube channel. And let me bring in the rest of the guys here. Stephen, how are you doing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? Doing well, Drew. How are you doing? Doing good. You notice I'm wearing my earrings like you are today? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to improve on the audio, so we'll see how that goes. Jeff is with us from Exton. Jeff, how are you doing? And Jeff is with us from Exton, I think. He did this last week to me. There, there he is. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was saying hi. Good afternoon. Hello, everybody. But I was still muted. I uh, know. Good to see you, Jeff. And Scott, I'm seeing you, Scott, so I know you're doing good. How are you? Doing fine. Good. God, glad to have you guys here. Jonathan is also with us. Uh, who Jonathan, Jonathan participates in the, in the panelists as well. But Jonathan is also... Uh, he, uh, he's handling the comments and monitoring all the comments and text questions coming in too. So Jonathan, thank you for being here. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you all this week. Great, great. All right, gentlemen, so we're going to start looking at, uh, what are we looking at today, Scott? What, what's the topic? Uh, Jeff came across an article uh, that we're going to be reviewing. And so Jeff, why don't you explain to us a little bit about the arguments presented in this article? So there's a website called Pathius.com. They host a lot of religious articles. And a man named Keith Giles has an article uh, published March 29th. <clears throat> and the title of the article is, Sorry, Christians, Our Bible Contains Fake Letters from Paul and Peter. And then he goes on to kind of rehash some of the things that have been written in liberal theology about some of the letters of Paul and Peter, whereby people argue, well, Paul couldn't have really written this letter. And, of course, then it, it really undermines your faith, your, your uh, faith in the Scriptures as the Word of God. Okay, if, if it's not written by Paul, if that's the truth, we want to know it. But the arguments that he presents uh, are pretty weak, and the arguments for Pauline authorship of these letters is pretty strong. And so we want to take a look at that. So one of the things he says in the article is that our New Testaments are filled with pseudepigrapha. Uh, what, what does that word mean? Well, pseudepigrapha, the pseudo part is, of course, false. Um, P-S-E-U-D-O, the pseudo uh, things are false things. And then epigrapha um, is going to have to do with things that are written. You think of grapho is the Greek word for I write, and graphics are things that are written, and Photograph is light writing. So pseudepigrapha is false writings, but basically it's a word that is used for writings that purports to be by an author uh, other than the true author. Somebody would pick out a famous biblical character, say, for example, the Epistle of Barnabas or the Episcopal, uh, maybe a better case would be the, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip, things that were written in the second century or later, but they had 
names attached to them of famous characters from the first century. And um, so you would think the idea is whoever anonymously wrote this is trying to pass it off as something written by an apostle, say, from the first century, when in fact it wasn't. So that, that's a false writing. It's pseudepigrapha. Gotcha. So, so this guy is trying to claim that a lot of Paul's letters that we have in our New Testament or First and Second Peter, they're not actually written by Paul. They're not actually written by Peter, but they're written by people posing as Paul or Peter. And, and the ones he mentioned specifically as far as Paul's letters are concerned are Ephesians, Colossians, Second Thessalonians, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. He argues that all of those were not written by Paul, and he has reasons for each one of those. And then similarly, 1 and 2 Peter, he's doubtful about those. So let's begin. And um, Jeff, I think you responded uh, to the site on some things about Ephesians. And coincidentally, Jeff happens to be the author of a commentary on Ephesians. Quick plug. Quick plug. Yeah, I appreciate that. But that's why, uh, I mean, you could say many similar things uh, about all of this guy's claims that I said in regard to his claims pertaining to Ephesians. Uh, But I picked Ephesians because I've done a lot of work in Ephesians. And uh, so maybe, maybe that'd be a good place to start. Let's just look at his reasons. Quote, I'm putting from his website right now. Um, summary of reasons doubt Pauline authorship of Ephesians. And I'm just going to go through them. He, he mentions nine of them. I won't read them all, the whole thing, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a fair representation of what he's saying in each one. And uh, you can look at the article yourself at Matthias.com. And then maybe we'll go back through and, and talk about the fallacies here. Does that sound okay? Sure. All right. Yeah, it all does. Right. Could I just interject something here, Jeff? Please do. Uh, some of some of the people in my canon class uh, tune into the program as well. I just want to make it clear: we're not doing a study or an explanation of canonicity of of these letters. Yeah. So his he has nine arguments as to why we should doubt that Paul wrote Ephesians. He says number one, the language and style are different. What he's saying is, if you compare Ephesians with other things that he says we know Paul wrote. That would be, for example, Galatians or Philippians or Philemon or 1 Corinthians. He'd say, we know Paul wrote those things. When you compare Ephesians with those things, he says the style is different. He says Ephesians contains 40 new words. Uh, In other words, he's saying Ephesians uses words that Paul doesn't use in his other writings. Um, Secondly, he says Ephesians and Colossians use a different word for reconcile from Paul's word. What he means by Paul's word is he means in the letters we know Paul wrote, He says there's a certain word for reconcile. But in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul uses a different word, and therefore Paul must have written them. Um, He says Ephesians and Colossians are similar. (laughs) When I responded to this yesterday online, I said, and and this proves that Paul didn't write Ephesians. Why? But but actually, here's, here's their argument. Since they're similar, then one must have just been a copy of the other. What they end up saying is neither one of them are by Paul, which uh, kind of. Uh, so they say Ephesians is not by Paul because it's not similar enough to Romans and Galatians. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
But exactly. it's also not by Paul because it's too similar to Klaus. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's too different. That oh, is, it's too similar. That is exactly right. That is exactly this chair right. is too big. This chair is too small. <laughs> yeah, he says Ephesians takes many ideas from Colossians. So that's a reason against Paul writing Ephesians, he says. He also says Ephesians refers to most of the other letters of Paul, and so he thinks this means it sounds like just a disciple of Paul who's summarizing all the ideas of Paul. And so Ephesians wasn't written by Paul. Um, Real quickly, he says uh, things that are metaphors in Paul's known writings end up being objective realities in Ephesians, so that can't be by Paul. He says Ephesians shows the church as becoming an advanced and powerful universal institution. And he argues that in Paul's time, there was no universal church in that sense, but only informal gatherings of individual believing communities. Two more. He says Ephesians contains no mention of charismatic gifts, so Paul must not have written it. And he says Ephesians shows Jesus acting on his own account, by his own authority, without making it explicit that he's acting on God's behalf. Uh, so he says that's not characteristic of Paul. So maybe then we can go back through those now. Those are his reasons for saying you should believe that Ephesians wasn't written by Paul. Let's just mention right at the outset. The, the first reason for whether we believe Ephesians was written by Paul or not by Paul is Ephesians starts out saying Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, etc. It starts out identifying the writer as Paul. If, if you get a letter from your friend and it says, uh, Joe here, uh, wanted to touch bases with you. Your first thought shouldn't be, hmm, I bet this isn't from Joe. <laughs> your first thought should be, this is probably from Joe, unless there's some really good reasons for thinking it's not from Joe. Well, this author, Keith Giles, has given us what he thinks are nine really good reasons for saying, yeah, it says it's from Paul, but it's really not. So let's take a look at it. So the one about the metaphor, things that are a metaphor in other passages become something, a reality in Ephesians. Like, was body one of the things he's, that he said had been a metaphor? Yeah. So he, Human resurrection and glorification. Yeah, I'll go back to it, and I'll read the ones he mentions. Faith, gospel, word of God, reconciliation, salvation, human resurrection and glorification, the church is the body of Christ, minister, and saints of God. I really am at a loss to explain what he's saying here when he says metaphors or illustrations in Paul are turned into actual objective realities in Ephesians. I don't know if that means he believes the word of God really is only a metaphor. It's really not an objective reality. uh, Or if he means, I don't know what he's trying to say there, but it makes no sense whatsoever. So one of the metaphors was human resurrection. Yes, what would you say is the most detailed, emphatic statement in Paul about human resurrection? What letter? First Corinthians 15. 15, yeah. And yet, what book, where, where does that go in his list of which books were by Paul and which weren't? He says Paul wrote First Corinthians. That's one of the ones we can use to test everything else by. Which is super emphatic about human resurrection. Yes. Yes. That yes. Ephesians is not by Paul because it. <laughs> Romans. Romans talks about the redemption of the body. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, Second Corinthians talks about the resurrection. First Thessalonians 
talks about the resurrection. Wait a minute. Did he doubt First Thessalonians? No, he doubted Second Thessalonians. He believed First Thessalonians was valid. I don't get this guy. <laughs> All right, but his first objection is that the language and style are different. He says Ephesians contains 40 new words. He says Paul uses words in Ephesians that Paul doesn't use in the other letters that we know were from Paul. You know, I asked this question when I posted online about this. Paul wrote uh, roughly a dozen letters in the New Testament. If you had written a dozen letters uh, over the past several years, do you think you could go back and find in one of those letters several words that weren't used, that you didn't use in any of the other letters? Yeah, because they're written for different people and for different occasions. There may have been some subject I was talking to one person about that I didn't need to talk to everybody else about, so I might use some words there that I don't use other places. Exactly. And But the thing is, when you go to the letters that, that even Keith Giles thinks Paul wrote, there are words there that he doesn't use in, in his other letters. I, I just used the number of words in each letter that are not found anywhere else, not only in Paul, but not anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, in Philemon, one, which is a very short letter, 1.5% of the words in Philemon are not found in Paul's other letters or anywhere else in the New Testament. In Ephesians, it's only 1.4% of the words that are not found in Paul's other letters or anywhere else. Where else in the New Testament? Mitten uh, was the guy, M-I-T-T-O-N, was a guy who popularized, helped popularize the idea that Paul did not write Ephesians. But Mitten said this, although there are more than 90 words in Ephesians not used elsewhere in the Pauline epistles, that's his tally, the tables in P. and Harrison's book on the problem of the pastoral epistles show that this is not an unusual, an un, this is not an unusual number in proportion to the length of the epistle. Several of the undoubtedly genuine epistles have an even higher percentage of words which are not found in the other Pauline writings. So there you go. When we look at authorship and use of similar vocabulary, few authors are as redundant as Dr. Seuss. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Big, small, etc. Show up a lot. Yeah. However, in all of his writings, I only know of one text that used the word eggs and ham. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that's so that, that Dr. Must not, have been not right. Green eggs and ham. That's right. It couldn't have been written by Green eggs and ham because you don't see eggs and ham in his. I mean, it couldn't have been written by Dr. Seuss because you don't see green eggs and ham mentioned in other of his writings. <laughs> And another thing, as we try to be careful about this, because we, we want to, if there are serious objections, to see if there's any substance to them. Mm -hmm. yes. But something we have to be careful about is to realize how far removed we as an audience are from the original writings and to recognize that people closer to those people who would have spoken to them or heard their teachings were in a much better position than we are to judge whether or not, oh, yes, this sounds like Paul, or this doesn't sound like Paul. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing to me how people can sit in judgment over things that are like, oh, no, that couldn't have been Paul. You know? and, and people who read Greek in the second century, um, who read Greek natively, believed Paul wrote Ephesians. We come, you know, 2,000 years later, and we'll see an argument like this uh, Mr. Giles' second argument. 
Ephesians and Colossians use a different word for reconcile from Paul's word. So if you don't read Greek and you're looking at the English language, this kind of leaves a sort of a mystery out there. Oh, I wonder what that, wow, in, in the Greek there's a different word. Oh, I mean, because in, in your English translation, in Ephesians you read reconcile. In 1 Corinthians, Romans, 2 Corinthians, you read reconcile. But now he's telling you, oh, but in Greek he used a different word. And as, so here's, here's the fact about this. In Romans, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the word, um, he uses the word katalasso, katalasso. In Ephesians and Colossians, he uses the word apakatalasso. Oh, okay, here, wow. here it again. In, in the ones that Mr. Giles says are written by Paul, he uses katalasso. In the ones that he says are not written by Paul, it's because you see the word apokatalasso. It's the same word, just with apa attached to the beginning. Well, what's the significance of that? Apa is a preposition, meaning from or away, away from, that kind of thing. Greeks would add prepositions to verbs. We do it also. We talk about eating or we talk about eating up. And what are we, what are we doing there? We're intensifying the meaning of the verb. Um, we talk about joining or joining together a little bit more specific. You're kind of enhancing the meaning of the verb. Um, burn, I think I, burn, say, up. say what? Burn, burn, burn up, change. You can change things or you can change things up. Well, the word lasso has the idea of changing and katalasso is changing from one state to another. It's reconciling, reconciling someone to God, for example, from whom we've been estranged. So changing that relationship. Well, all Paul did was he attached the word apa at the beginning of it. In English, we, we put the verb and the preposition together, but we don't make them one word. In Greek, they did. And so it's kind of like the difference between saying join and join together. So if you got a letter from me, and in one letter I said, um, I joined something, and then in the next letter I said, I joined something together, would you say, hmm, the second letter said it was from Jeff, but he was joined together. In the other letter, he just said join. So the second letter must not really be from Jeff. Would you do that? No. It's just a small, small difference. And that's amazing, you know, because he's saying that these two words for reconcile are a different word. Okay. The whole word is technically a different word, but it's just this added preposition. Like that, that's the only thing that makes it different. Yeah. Uh -huh. Some of the arguments there, I mean, we do have different levels of historical information about the books in the Bible. So, for example, on authorship, uh, do we know who wrote Hebrews? No, we don't, although I do. Oh, very good. Uh -oh. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait for commentary on that. Do we know who wrote Romans? Yes. Uh, we have early quotation of 1 Corinthians. Yeah, in the first century, uh, in the writing of, of Clint, 95. Do, do we have every book quoted that early? No, we don't. There's different. But for, to make arguments like this, you know, that's, wow, that's, that's weak. Let's skip over a couple of his. Let's come down to number eight. His, his argument, Ephesians contains no mention of charismatic gifts. Okay, have you ever, have either of you ever written a letter in which you mentioned the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Any of you? I can't think of one. Oh, really? Okay. 
I, I suspect, Scott, you probably sometime or another written a letter or an article or something about, and you mentioned spiritual gifts. I try to avoid writing letters or articles. So, <laughs> PowerPoint, I didn't write it. Okay. I had a letter from me. You know it's too bigger. I have mentioned spiritual gifts, <laughs> but that doesn't mean every letter from mine does. Paul's letters, the best I can recall, quickly looking through them, I don't see reference to spiritual gifts in Philippians or in Lehman, which this guy says Paul did write. Right. Right. But in Ephesians, as a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul is talking about the gifts, and I'm not trying to focus on the word gifts here, but he's talking about the gifts which the Lord has provided for the building up of the church, and he specifies the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And as you follow his argument, his argument is that this body of Christ, which is uh, Jews and Gentiles united together, not two separate bodies, but one body. Uh, they need to maintain the unity of the Spirit. They need to maintain the oneness, maintain the oneness of the body of Christ. And the Lord has provided something that will help achieve that, and that's the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The way they're going to help achieve that is they're going to teach what needs to be taught so that everybody attains the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God into a full-grown man under the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and craftiness after wiles of error. In other words, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are provided to teach you the true way, the truth, so that you can all be united in it. How did the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers know what to teach while the New Testament had not yet been completely written? Holy Spirit. Spiritual yeah. gifts. And spiritual yeah. gifts. Yeah. So there is, there is an implicit reference to spiritual gifts here that is kind of overlooked in his argument. But even if it didn't, Philemon, Philippians, I don't remember any reference to spiritual gifts there. And yet this guy says Paul wrote those. Yeah. So there's just a lot of inconsistency there. And this is a different topic. He doesn't mention it. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't write it. How about this one? Oh, how about that Ephesians shows that the church is becoming an advanced and powerful universal institution. So Paul couldn't have written it because the church wasn't an advanced and powerful universal institution at this time. What do you think he has in mind, advanced and powerful universal institution? He says, like the church today. Well, it talks about uh, the church having shepherds and teachers, etc., well, yes, and I think what he's doing, he is seeing in that something that, what he says, a powerful universal institution like the church today, I think he's thinking of the uh, institutional organizations such as the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran synods where you have this hierarchy and all of that kind of thing, and we don't see that in Ephesians, but when he says in time there was no universal church in that sense well not in that sense but there was a universal church in the sense that we see it in Ephesians there was a body of saints saved by the blood of Jesus Christ that's what Paul means by body in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23 Christ is himself the head of the church the savior of the body uh, the body is saved people that's the people Jesus has of whom Jesus is the savior so and, and 
On that, another thing he says when he's saying metaphors or illustrations that are turned into actual objective realities, one of them was the church as the body of Christ in Ephesians. Well, certainly in Ephesians, it says Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. Yeah. But what do we have in 1 Corinthians 12, which he accepts, and Romans 12, which he accepts? Same analogy, especially the extended metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12. Yeah. I can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. And, and he talks a lot about the dynamics of different gifts, same body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, this, it's the same metaphor. Let's move on to uh, Gnosticism. Jeff, I know you've done a lot of work on Gnosticism. He said, um, summary of reason. Let, wait a second. Don't worry. That's, That's fine. This, this is Colossians. We talked about Ephesians enough. Let's pick another bit. So it's, so it's not just Ephesians. We can do the same thing with, um, with, he, with his other uh, letters that he says weren't written by Paul. So we've got Colossians. Before I was kind of talking about ridiculous to say it's like this, but not like that, and back and forth. But one reason when he says, well, it's like Colossians, and he, but to be fair to his argument, he says, and Colossians wasn't by Paul. So if Ephesians is copying Colossians and Colossians wasn't by Paul. And one of the reasons he says Colossians is not by Paul is because that letter was aimed at refuting Gnosticism, a heresy which had not reached its ascendancy until the early second century. Yeah. Let's address that. So, he, he, I noticed he was careful there, had not yet reached its ascendancy. I'm not sure why it would have had to have reached its ascendancy for Paul to have addressed it in Colossians in the first century. Um, but but what he's, he's hedging his bets a little bit there. Here's the thing. Gnosticism, we see evidence of it throughout the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter, um, five, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul is addressing the Gnostic issue throughout 1 Timothy. But you get to the close of the letter, and he says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard that which is committed to you, turning away from the profane babblings and oppositions of the knowledge which is falsely so-called. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy, now, of course, our, our friend here, Mr. Giles, doesn't believe that Paul wrote 1 Timothy. That's part and of the issue. Gnosticism would be one of the reasons why. And, and that's right. He would deny it. Because of, but it, it alludes to a knowledge which was falsely so-called, something called knowledge, but it wasn't really. Well, the word for knowledge is gnosis, which is uh, the word gnostic comes from gnostic or gnosis, uh, and it means the, this idea of knowing. A gnostic was somebody who claimed to have this special knowledge. And Paul says there, it's, it's a knowledge falsely so-called. Well, of course, he doesn't believe 1 Timothy was written then. But the argument goes is basically this. Our, our sources uh, for descriptions of Gnosticism other than the Bible, and when I, I should back up here, our sources that describe Gnosticism that was, um, that was being uh, propagated in Christian vocabulary uh, our sources for knowledge of that kind of thing, other than the Bible, come primarily from the second century. But there's ample evidence of it in the Bible itself in the first century. And so theologians will make a distinction between Gnosticism with a capital G and Gnosticism with a lowercase g. 
and they'll use capital G when they're talking about the philosophy of Gnosticism that is illustrated from secular or from non-biblical writings in the second century and later. They'll call that, well, that's Gnosticism with a capital G. But they see the very same ideas, the very same philosophy described and attacked in the writings of the New Testament, including writings that some of which they believe were written in the first century. And so they say, well, that must have been uh, a nascent Gnosticism, but they won't use capital G. They'll use lowercase g. So then you can say, well, capital G Gnosticism didn't come around in the second century. Why not? Well, because in the first century, it was with lowercase g. <laughs> and so, so then when you find true Gnosticism being attacked in the New Testament scriptures, you say, well, that must have been written in the second century. Uh, if, if you are predisposed to do that. Yeah, so it's a lot of like the which came first, the chicken or the egg um, kind of a thing. Yeah. Except we're not even talking about the fullness of the thing, but just the teachings that led up to the heyday of Gnosticism in the second century. And it's tempting, it's tempting, just to drive home the point, it's tempting to spend the next 15 minutes just going through all of the passages in the New Testament that are clearly addressing Gnostic philosophy. We, we won't do that. We don't have to do that. Let's just let it suffice to say we don't see the word Gnosticism in Colossians. What we see being addressed is the same sort of Gnostic philosophy that we see being addressed in other writings of the New Testament. Drew. Yeah, I have a question for you, Jeff. Uh, in his article, one of the, his first point referring to refuting Gnosticism, he made a statement. I don't know if you, you might have said it this way. The basis for the early objection was that the letter aimed at refuting. Was there early objection? Okay, are we talking about... Oh, we're talking about Colossians here. Yes, uh, I don't. I can't tell you when um, it, they first began to argue Colossians wasn't written by Paul, but I suspect it was similar in time to Ephesians. And the objection to Ephesians arose at the end of the 18th century in 1792. Uh, there was a writer who uh, argued that that Paul could not have written Ephesians. And then it caught on thereafter. So when we say early objection to Paul as the author of Ephesians, we're only going back over the last couple of hundred years. Right, because when I use the term early objection to other books, which they did, I would say in the first two or three hundred years of right. Christianity. Yeah. But that's not going back that early, right? I mean, he's not making that no, I, the right. guy who first The guy who first made a name for himself by opposing the idea that Paul wrote Ephesians was a guy named uh, Evanson, Edward Evanson. 1792, he was a Unitarian, and uh, then it got picked up after that. Can I, can I interject something here since you bring that up? And I want to share a screen here if I can. Uh, let me find how to, to, where's my little share screen thing? This is a table. This is compiled by a man who's written a commentary on Ephesians, uh, Harold Honer. And his commentary is a, it's a big thing. It's a very thorough thing. It's a good work. Um, he tallies the writers who are, who believe Paul wrote Ephesians and those who don't believe Paul wrote Ephesians. And I've simplified his work here a little bit. Um, but these are his numbers. Uh, from the decade from 1900 to 1910, for example, there were 14 scholars writing commentaries who said Paul wrote Ephesians. Five said no, Paul didn't. And so that's the way this works. Can you all see this? Yes. yes. All right. 
let's just take the latter half of the 20th century because you might think that's where we would especially see people gaining this newfound insight that Paul didn't really write Ephesians, right? Well, in the latter half of the 20th century, 128 of the scholars say Paul wrote it, 103 say he didn't. That's 55% to 45%. If we take all of the 20th century, the numbers are 82 said Paul wrote it, 76 said Paul didn't. That's 52% to 48%. So when our friend, Mr. Giles, was that his name? Yeah. When our friend Mr. Giles says things like the consensus of scholarship says these were not written by Paul or these were not written by Peter. Right. Um, you know what? I wouldn't say 45% is a consensus. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And one more comment on Gnosticism, uh, just to illustrate uh, a principle here. Uh, we have now the writings of a lot of the Gnostics. They were discovered in the 1940s at Nag Hammadi. And the documents, we can date the documents, doesn't mean their original composition, but some of the documents were written in the middle of the fourth century. Mm -hmm. now, that doesn't mean Gnosticism didn't exist before then, but the writings from the Gnostics that we have, a lot of them were the manuscripts that we have are from the fourth century. Now we know that Gnosticism was around a lot before that. We know that it was around in the second century. Why? Because there were people writing against it in the yes. second century, like yes. Irenaeus. Yes. Yes. Tertullian. Well, Tertullian, in fact, wrote five volumes against Marcion. Yeah, but I think he's third century, right? He's right, well, at the right, cusp. Right. right on the cusp. Yeah, okay. All right. So, um, do we have, so if we've got people in the third century writing against Gnosticism, it, it existed. And in the second century. If we've got people in the second century writing in, against Gnosticism, then it exists then. Right. Oh, if we've got people in the first century writing against Gnosticism, Colossians. Right. What, what would be a nice historical conclusion? That there was Gnosticism in the first century. There you go. That's a beautiful argument. All right. Um, let's take a look at another part of this here uh, uh, on Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. Summary of reasons to doubt Pauline authorship of Thessalonians. Yeah. Second Thessalonians. Knowledge of the synoptic gospels, which according to the current scholarly consensus had not been written when Paul wrote his epistles. Uh, first off, I wouldn't claim that all of the synoptic gospels, and certainly not the gospel of John, had been written before Paul wrote the Thessalonian letters. Right. I wouldn't either. But let's just look at this argument. He's rejecting Second Thessalonians because it reflects a knowledge of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, so it couldn't have been by Paul. So that knowledge couldn't have been around in Paul's time. So I'm going to share a screen here uh, if I can remember where the share screen button is. There it is. And here's what we're going to take a look at. Can everybody see my screen? Yes. Yep. 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 All right. So let's come down to right here. Uh, so we're talking here about early accounts versus later legends. Uh, early references to gospel basics using only 
the critic accepted letters of Paul. So we're going to we're going to start with his argument that these are the uh, only ones that everybody agrees on. And by this, we mean historians and critics, which would not only include historians and academic critics that believe in God or believe in the Bible, but it includes the agnostic ones, the atheist ones. It should say atheist instead of theist. Can, can I just real quickly ask a question? Do we have time for me to squeeze this in on this point? When he says Second Thessalonians shows knowledge of things found in the Gospels, I'm trying to think what it is in Second Thessalonians he has in mind. Is it his reference in Second Thessalonians 1, 7 to uh, the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power and flaming fire and eternal destruction from the place of the Lord in verse 9, something that we'd see, for example, in Matthew 25? Is he referring to, um, there was something else that I thought he might be referring to. What do you think he's referring to? I'm not sure because there's really, I see more reference to things in the Gospels in um, First Thessalonians than I do in Second Thessalonians. I do, I do too. I was I was thinking the same thing. But we'll accept his premise that there are references to things. Uh, there are things in Second Thessalonians that are also found in the Gospels. Let's accept that premise and say, okay, what does that prove? Go ahead. All right. So we're going to look from the Gospels, and we're going to build here. And by the way. When I I don't when I have your guys' pictures up, I'm not sure if it's blocking my screen or not. We'll tell you. It's not blocking your screen. Okay. Um, we can so see your whole screen. From the Gospels, just very quickly, in the Gospels, are these not some of the basic things that we have? Well, it's not working. Put your cursor on the program. There you go. There we go. That Jesus was born of Mary, who was a virgin. He was a descendant of King David. His father was Joseph. He had some brothers and uh, sisters, and he was born at Bethlehem and Nazareth. Those right? are all mentioned in the Gospels. And then you have John the Baptist is his forerunner, yep. and then you have his ministry, and there's lots of teaching, lots of miracles. He appoints 12 apostles, including Peter, John, etc. Right. Then he finally enters Jerusalem. He's opposed by Jewish leaders betrayed by Judas. He establishes the Lord's Supper. He's arrested and tried before the high priest, brought to Pilate, Herod, crucified, buried by Joseph and Nicodemus, rose on the first day, appeared to the apostles, and ascended to the Father. I is see that where you're not, going. Yep, is that's all not, in the Gospels. What's that? I see where you're going. Yep, that's all in the Gospels. All right. Now, I will agree that the parables and sermons of Jesus don't show up a lot in uh Paul's letters that this guy doesn't accept or Paul's letters that he does accept. Yeah. I will agree that we don't have the story of Bartimaeus, the blind man being healed and other miracles that Jesus did in Paul's letters that he accepts or doesn't accept, but using just the ones he accepts, let's see what we can build. Right. All right. So from Romans, first or second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, first Thessalonians and Philemon, it's one he say, says that are undisputed. Everybody accepts. Yeah. What can we rebuild? Okay. Born of a virgin. Yep. Galatians 4.4 4 points out that Jesus was born of woman. Yep. How would you word it that way if you just mean that he had a mother? Yeah. You know, uh, Drew didn't introduce Jeff today saying, and Jeff, who was born of a woman. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that narrows it down. <laughs> Descendant of King David. Yep. That's the Romans. Right. That he had brothers. Right. Is both in First Corinthians and Galatians, right. and they're familiar to people. Um, there's some reference to his teaching, 
Um, the apostles, yep. 12 apostles are, are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. Yep. Peter and John are mentioned by name yep. in Galatians and 1 Corinthians. Um, the fact that the Jews killed him, and I believe it mentions in Jerusalem, either that or Judea, is in 1 Thessalonians yep. uh, chapter 2. The betrayal, you remember in 1 Corinthians, a letter he accepts says, on the night in which he was Crucified. Betrayed. 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 (laughs) And notice the way he refers to that. He's not telling the Corinthians. He's not informing him, oh, by the way, Jesus was betrayed. He's reminding them of what he had taught them about the Lord's Supper. He says, and on the night that he was betrayed. This was common knowledge not only to Paul. It was common knowledge to the Corinthians because Paul had taught them this. These basic things. The Lord's Supper, of course, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that he was uh, 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 tried again, that he'd been uh, put to death, uh, etc. The crucifixion is all over the place, of course. That he was buried is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the resurrection, of course, and that he appeared to the disciples has gone over in great detail in 1 Corinthians 15. And the ascension in Philippians and Romans. And if... And in a different uh, webcast, maybe we'll talk about the book of Acts. I think the book of Acts is one of the most fascinating books to look at to demonstrate early authorship. Um, And once you establish that and you introduce Paul's speeches in Acts, you have the fact that he's from Nazareth, Acts 22. You have John the Baptist, Acts 13. You have more reference to his teaching, even though it's, it's limited. And you have the fact that he was brought before Pilate. All of these from Paul. So, so of course, our friend, Mr. Giles, who says that Paul could not have written um, Rome, um, uh, Ephesians or Colossians or 2 Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Specifically, 2 Thessalonians, because it makes references to things that were in the Gospels. Well, he would say the Gospels were written after Galatians, and yet Galatians is referring to things in the Gospels. All these other letters that he says Paul did write, you've shown us, refer to things in the Gospels. Can I make... Go ahead. Go ahead. One other comment here. Uh, There's a passage in John 11. Now, I believe the Gospel of John was probably written in the 90s, like the last decade of the first century. And it says here, um, verse 1 and 2, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. He's telling us what Mary, it's the Mary who did this to Lazarus. Readers, he obviously assumes his readers know about that. But John hasn't told us about that yet. He doesn't tell us about that incident until chapter 12. Right. So the, the clear implication is that disciples, Christians already knew about a lot of these things, um, even before the gospels were written. Yeah. Because what had predated both the writing of the Gospels and the writing of Romans and 1 Corinthians. The preaching of the apostles and prophets. And what had predated that? The events themselves. was born, that he grew up in Nazareth, that he appointed 12 apostles, that he was betrayed, that he was, you know, it rose from the dead, etc. Those events preceded the writings of the things. Yeah. Okay, well, guys, that, that's I, there's a lot more we could do because you can you can debunk 
the, the things he says about all these letters as we've done here with these. But hopefully this is enough to, to set people's minds at ease. When young people today get tempted by the world, it's easy for them to latch on to some claim like this to say, oh, well, I don't need to believe the Bible anyway. It's a it's pseudepigrapha. And we're going to trust the guy in the, in the year 2019 over people from the first, second so century. We ought to say who this guy is. I don't know anything about him. Didn't know anything about him until a couple of days ago. But he's a, he's a guy who was some preacher in some, I think, Protestant denomination. And he's kind of left whatever he was a part of and started some house church or something. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He did admit, though, in his article, if I'm not mistaken, that even though these letters were written by other people and, and lied and put Paul's name on it, that they were inspired? Yes. That, that, and Jonathan had pointed this out earlier, that some of his kind of strange reasoning. He, even at the beginning, he said, these letters were accepted before, you know, higher critical studies or whatever, and not based on tech. They were just sometimes accepted because of how people felt. And then later he says, but now does that mean that whoever wrote second Thessalonians wasn't inspired? He says, no, I believe they were inspired by the Holy spirit and had the, had the, had a knowledge of Christ and inspired by the Holy spirit. And they said, now first and second Peter, I don't think so. In a, in another book, he said, I don't know about that. And he talked about, but, he says, I, you know, I recognize the voice of Jesus in this. So, you know, he ends up being very subjective. It seems like he's going, I feel that Second Thessalonians, even though it's written, not written by Paul, written by somebody pretending to be Paul, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Second Peter is not. <laughs> he kind of sets himself up as, as the uh, arbiter. He's the yeah. one who knows. I think this whole thing is just helpful. It reminds me of Proverbs eighteen seventeen: The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So anytime you hear a claim like this from someone who sounds like they know what they're talking about, take some time and let someone else examine them or you examine them yourselves and see if their claims stand up to what they're saying. Okay, guys. Excellent. We've passed our time for today. I really appreciate your input, Jeff. Scott, Stephen, thank you so much. And uh, look, anything else before we sign off today, guys? Good seeing every one of you. And we invite everyone back next Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Thank you.